Today's episode is sponsored by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your real credit card number. Instead, you create virtual credit card numbers which are linked to your bank account that you can use anywhere you shop. You can create as many virtual cards as you want, and you have unparalleled control over the activity and limits of each one. Then, when companies get hacked and people's information is stolen, you haven't lost anything because they never had your real number to begin with. You can find out more, get 100% free and unlimited access, and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com best, and you can find that link in the show notes. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about two strategies being pursued in parallel to reform our presidential election process and make every vote for president count equally. Clips today come from Making Contact, Citizens Take Action, Ring of Fire Radio, and The Politics Guys. Today I'd like to talk a little about the Electoral College. To start, I'm going to cite some items that I pulled from the Office of the Federal Register. That's the office that helps states organize their electors and in the end certifies and archives the results of the Electoral College votes. So here's the first item. In each state, the voters choose electors to select the President and Vice President of the United States based on the results of the November general election. Now, there are two things um, here that could be a little disturbing. The first is the voters choose electors to select the president and vice president. So I don't think the average American voter believes that when they step into the booth on election night, they're choosing members of the Electoral College, nor could they tell you who these people are. So would you please tell me who the electors are, why we choose them, And does an average Josephine like me stand a chance to be an elector one day? An average Josephine absolutely can be an elector because, in fact, the only people who can't be electors are the regular politicians, the members of the House and the Senate and and so on. The way an average Josephine gets to be an elector is by getting her political party and basically to to name her on a slate by basically being a good party person generally pretty obscure people that have been picked by the candidates, by the parties, to basically be loyal to them. Now, why do we have this system? Not for the reason that you were told in third grade or eighth grade or college. You were probably told, oh, it's a balance between big and small states. But if so, how come the big state guy always wins? We've had three small state presidents in all of American history, Bill Clinton, Franklin Pierce, and Zachary Taylor. For 32 of the first 36 years of the presidency, it's a Virginian. That's the biggest state. For the other four, it's a Massachusetts guy. That's the second or third biggest state, depending on you count. Uh, For the next four years after that, another Massachusetts guy. So it's not big state, small state. We were told also in eighth grade, oh, we have electors because the framers didn't really believe in direct democracy. But they put the Constitution itself to a vote. They believe that the House of Representatives should be directly elected, even though Congress under the Articles of Confederation, the earlier document, wasn't directly elected. They believed in direct election of governors. So that's not quite it. One of the biggest reasons that we have the Electoral College, and this is not what you were told in eighth grade, but I promise you it's true, is slavery. Because 225 years ago, if you just had direct 
um, popular vote. The South would have gotten outvoted every time because it doesn't let its black population, who are slaves largely, vote. So the Electoral College basically meant that Virginia would get to count its slaves, albeit with a three-fifths discount, but southern states would get some partial credit for their slave populations. Who's the big winner in this system? Big southern states with lots of slaves, in particular Virginia. Remember, again, for 32 of the first 36 years of the new Constitution, the presidency is held by a slaveholding Virginian. In 1800... Pennsylvania has more free people than Virginia, way more voters than Virginia because it lets a larger proportion of its free population vote. But who has more electoral votes? Virginia does, more than Pennsylvania, because Virginia has a lot of slaves that it gets to count as three-fifths. So we have the Electoral College largely for reasons of slavery. If this wasn't overwhelmingly obvious to everyone when the Constitution was adopted, and perhaps it wasn't, it became overwhelmingly obvious when we had two races as soon as Washington left the scene between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And Adams won the first time, and Jefferson won the second time. And it's a southerner, Jefferson, against a northerner, Adams. And the races both times, they're not big state against small state. It's north against south. And Jefferson wins the south, and Adams wins the north. And in the, in the second time around, Jefferson wins because he gets the swing state, which wasn't Ohio yet. It was New York. That was the swing state at the time where north met south, which was a slave state at the time. And every person who voted for Adams understood that without the extra electoral votes created by slavery that Thomas Jefferson won because he wins the South, John Adams would have actually won that second election in 1800. So by 1800, it is obvious to everyone in America who is paying any attention that the Electoral College has a huge benefit for Southern slaveholding populations, for the slave masters. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Jim Glassman, who has an extremely impressive resume. He's former Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy under the George W. Bush administration, as well as former chairman of the U.S. Broadcasting Board of Governors Association. And you may have even caught him on CNN or PBS as the moderator of Capital Gang Sunday or Uh, on Ideas in Action, and he's currently a board member of Make Every Vote Count. Jim, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, David. Today we're going to jump into an issue that may not be on many people's minds in the middle of a presidential election cycle, but certainly was in 2016 and likely will be again in 2020, and that is the Electoral College. Now, Jim, as someone who worked in the George W. Bush administration, and George W. Bush famously won the 2000 presidential election uh, while losing the popular vote, many people would assume that you are a staunch defender of the Electoral College. Is that the case? No, I'm not a staunch defender at all. I mean, I am certainly happy that President Bush won the 2000 election. Um, Unfortunately, this has become a partisan issue, partly because President Bush won in 2000 without getting the popular majority. Uh, And of course, President Trump 
did the same in 2016. So two of the last five elections have been won by someone who did not receive a majority of the popular vote. And I think that's bad for democracy. Um, whatever uh, has been the, the tradition and however uh, states have have interpreted uh, their constitutional responsibilities, the fact is most Americans believe that the person who gets the most popular vote is the person who ought to be president. And there's a certain amount of illegitimacy that uh, attaches to someone who doesn't get the popular vote. Uh, there are lots of other problems with the with uh, the current system for electing presidents. The main one I just want to touch on, and we'll certainly go into depth, is the fact that the current system means that mo- that the candidates, the two candidates of the parties, campaign really in only 10 to 12 states, and they really concentrate most of their efforts in just a half a dozen states. And that's just not good for democracy. We can't have a dozen states determining who the president of the United States is. So I am very much opposed to the current system, and I've worked hard to um, to change it, which is what most Americans want. Yeah, I think you've highlighted a couple of important issues right off the bat. You know, one is the obvious issue that the candidate who wins a popular vote doesn't necessarily win the presidency due to the Electoral College, but you've said it's become a partisan issue. Um, do you think there's anything inherent in the Electoral College that makes it favor Republicans over Democrats as it did in 2000 or 2016? Or do you think that that was more happenstance and it can really favor any candidate at any time? Uh, I think the latter. Uh, right now, we may be in a situation where uh, Republicans have a have an edge as far as possibly winning the uh, electoral vote and not the popular vote. But this shifts back and forth. It really just depends on what the critical states are. Um, you know, you can probably argue that uh, one of the things that the current system does is it gives more weight to smaller states or to to rural states. I'm not sure that that's really true, but I would absolutely take no solace if I were a Republican. I mean, I am a Republican. Um, I would take <laughs> absolutely no solace uh, as a Republican that the current system currently seems to favor Republicans. That is very, very short-sighted. I mean, that could change. It wasn't very many years ago that people talked about the blue wall. I mean, after all, the Democrats are in the the majority, and it's been a pretty strong majority in many of the largest states, uh, the largest state, California and New York, in Illinois, and uh, Republicans really only dominate in one of the largest states, which is uh, which is Texas. And Florida is kind of a, a, a pretty much a toss up, although it's trended toward Republicans recently. So no, there's absolutely no solace in saying, oh, well, the current system favors Republicans. And I believe, you know, in the 2004 election, John Kerry was only about 120,000 votes in Ohio away from winning the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. And you have to think that if that had happened in 2000 and 2004, Americans of all political persuasions would have been united in trying to fix the Electoral College. But the way it worked out perhaps makes it seem more partisan an issue than it actually is. 
Um, you're absolutely uh, right. And I'm sorry I forgot about that because I, I, cer- I certainly use that argument with uh, Republicans in Connecticut when we were campaigning for uh, in the legislature to win uh, Connecticut's support for the compact that will lead eventually to electing uh, the president by popular vote. Actually, the statistic, I think, is, is that if 60,000 votes had shifted in Ohio, from Bush mm, right. to Kerry, then Kerry would have won the electoral vote and would have lost the popular vote by three million votes. So that's <laughs> absolutely true. This is look. This is not a good system for electing presidents, and three quarters of Americans uh, agree that it's not a good system for electing presidents. And you know what we found in Connecticut was a majority of Republicans agree that it's not the right system to elect presidents. The way that presidents ought to be elected is the person who receives the most popular vote. That, that, that's the way we elect every other office in America. And we ought to elect the president the same way. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because you know most people maybe take for granted that the way they elect their mayors or members of Congress or governors or city council members is typically through the popular vote and you generally don't hear people clamoring saying, well, this system's awful. We should elect people like we do the Electoral College. It's really this one office that's so prominent and relatively unique um, in the political landscape. Another problem that you touched on already was obviously kind of the artificially inflated influence of about a dozen states, or as most people call them, swing states. I'm interested in this from a civic engagement perspective. I saw a study that showed that uh, according to the U.S. election project, turnout is much higher than the national average in swing states and lower in safe states, which raises the argument that the Electoral College actually deters civic engagement in parts of the country. Are there other reasons that you're uh, skeptical of the notion of swing states versus safe states and don't think it's good that we divide states along those lines? Yeah, well, let me let me just go back to what you were saying. Um there's there's no doubt. I mean, I hear all the time because I live in Washington, D.C. I used to live in Maryland. Those are two examples of states that uh, have reliably been Democratic states. And I know lots of my friends, both Democrats and Republicans, who say, yeah, it doesn't really make any difference whether I vote or not, because it's a foregone conclusion. In the District of Columbia, 85 percent of the vote goes to the Democrat almost always. So people think, well, why should I vote? Well, if you had a popular vote system, the 15% that went to Republicans would actually count. Uh, Now it doesn't really count. And the excess vote that goes to Democrats doesn't count either. So I think that's uh, a very important argument that people are discouraged. And and another important argument is, is, is simply that Nobody campaigns in these states. So you don't have the, the kind of civic engagement you were talking about. My, my sister, um, who lives in Connecticut and is quite engaged, she's a Democrat. She ran for state legislature, asked, uh, the party apparatus in her, um, in her county, in Litchfield County, if she could get a yard sign for Hillary Clinton. And they said, yeah, but you got to pay for it. I mean, and the reason was that Connecticut is a foregone conclusion. It's gone for the last eight elections to a Democrat. So they're not going to waste money on a yard sign for Hillary Clinton. Doesn't make any difference. 
So that is not, that's not good. That's a, that's a kind of uh, cynical atmosphere that pervades much of our election system. Uh, just as another example, I was on the, uh, on a TV show and, um, and, and the, uh, the host said to me, well, you know, it's kind of interesting. You should say, you should uh, point that out because I've lived in many places and almost every place I've lived, my vote really hasn't counted very much. You know, it's, you know, DC, Maryland, uh, lots of other states that I've lived. And I said, well, you know, that's not unusual because in three quarters of the states, your vote doesn't count. There are only 12 states where your vote does yeah. count, where the vote is contested. So that's that's bad for democracy. You know, I'm a lifelong California resident. And so in the presidential election, I've always felt, you know, I voted, but I felt my vote's not going to make the difference. And I don't know who has it worse because Republicans in California, if you're voting in the presidential election, you know, you almost feel like, well, you know, your candidate's not going to win. So why bother showing up? Uh, my wife actually moved from Wisconsin to California. So she went from a place where her vote mattered a lot to a place where it matters a lot less. And yeah, it doesn't seem like just by choosing to live in one state or another, it should impact the value of your vote so much. Um, do you feel like the Electoral College in a way violates the principle of one person, one vote? Absolutely. No doubt about it. And I think what you said about California is really important. I mean, people, you know, California is a state that went almost two to one for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And yet there were 4.5 million votes for Donald Trump, 4.5 million votes for Donald Trump. So that is, that is, that's a significant number of votes that in a popular vote, if we determine the president by popular vote, would have a real impact on the uh, results of the election. But you might as well just throw them out. They don't really mean anything. And imagine if they did mean something, how many more Republicans would be voting in California? And I would also say how many more Democrats as well. So yes, uh, it does violate the principle of one person, one vote. And and it's something that we can fix. That's the main thing. It's something that Americans want and that can, that can be fixed and is in the process right now of being fixed. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that's here to prove you have more time to read books than you thought. Just as I curate and distill the most important points about political issues, Blinkist does that for thousands of nonfiction books, condensing them down into just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to as audiobooks. Blinkist is made for busy people who want to get the main points out of books quickly. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library including self-help, business, health, history, and of course politics. 
My reading list is longer than I'll ever have time for. I'm sure you can relate. So I use Blinkist to speed through books I know I'm never going to get to, but I also use it to listen to blinks of books that I really do plan to read to help confirm that they're going to be worth my time. A book on Blinkist I highly recommend, whose author has been featured in interviews on the show, is Arlie Russell Hochschild's Strangers in Their Own Land, the perfectly timed book written from years of research on Southern GOP voters, but was released just before the 2016 election, which helped many of us understand what the hell just happened. If you want to check out Blinkist for yourself, for a limited time, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. And of course, you can cancel anytime. Blinkist.com slash best. Here to tell us why the Electoral College distorts our elections and why he wants to make sure every vote is equal, Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig. So, Professor, you are pursuing a, uh, a legal case. Who would be the plaintiffs and who would be the defendants in this case? Well, we haven't settled finally on the states, but we will have plaintiffs. We've identified plaintiffs in a red state and plaintiffs in a blue state. And in the red state, those plaintiffs are Democrats. And in the blue state, those plaintiffs are Republicans. And these are plaintiffs who say, Uh, My vote never matters. No matter what I do, my vote will never be counted at the federal level to determine who the next president is. And we believe that violates uh, their rights under the Equal Protection Clause that guarantees everybody's vote should count the same. So, I mean, how is it that um, if I'm, let's say, a uh, a Republican voter in the state of Massachusetts, uh, or if I'm a a Democratic voter in the state of Wyoming. Uh, how is it that my vote doesn't matter in the presidential election? Well, the presidential system, as everyone knows, uh, is ultimately determined by the votes of the electors to the Electoral College. Those electors are specified by the Constitution, and we're not challenging the Electoral College or the fact or the number of electors specified by the Constitution. But the state's have adopted a rule called winner-take-all, which says that the person who wins the popular vote gets all of the electoral college votes. So even if you win by just a single ballot, you get all the electoral college votes of that state. And so what that means is that at this intermediate level on the way up to determining who the president of the United States will be, if you happen to vote for someone who doesn't win your state, your vote doesn't get reflected in the ultimate vote for the president. And that's the sense in which the system is discarding the votes, contingently discarding the votes of voters at this intermediate stage. And that's the character of the system that we believe renders it unconstitutional. What, what, now, where is it that, I mean, how is it, and I know there are two states that do uh, proportional. In other words, um, the electoral um, and, and, and actually, it's sort of a mix, right? It's uh, There are two states that do this in a different way. What are those two states, and how do they do it differently than the rest of the states? No, you're right. It's a mix. So Maine and Nebraska allocate their senator electoral votes. Every state gets two electors for their senators. They allocate their senator electoral votes on a winner-take-all basis. So if you win the state of Maine, you get both uh, senator electors. 
but then they uh, allocate the um, the rest of their electors by congressional district. So if you win the congressional district, you get the elector for that congressional district. And that dynamic creates an almost proportional system. It's not it's not the system that we actually will be pressing for. We want to be pressing for a fully proportional system. And that's, you know, in a small state, you can see why the two votes for the senator means it's not fully proportional. But um, it's uh, more proportional than winner-take-all, where um, when uh, you get all the votes, if you get one, if you get the majority in the particular state. All right. So let me uh, let me uh, play the role of uh, of uh, Chief Justice Roberts. And um, you are um, uh, you are litigating this case. And I say to you, well, um, Professor Lessig, you're not uh, your your plaintiffs aren't voting for the president of the United States when they go to vote. I mean, we colloquial talk about colloquial talk about uh, voting for uh, the president. But they're, in fact, voting for electors who actually, um, you know, uh, don't even necessarily have to reflect what the vote uh, tally in their state is. I mean, we there's a small fine if they don't. But you're voting for electors. And so your vote does count. You're just you're just losing. Yeah. So um, I would say, Mr. Chief Justice, as this court has made perfectly clear, while states are free to select electors however they want, once they decide to vest in voters the right to vote for presidential candidates, the principle of one person, one vote restricts the state in how they actually tally or retally, uh, recount those votes. And the court has held that since 1968 and most recently held that in a case you might have heard of called Bush v. Gore. In Bush v. Gore, the question was, in the presidential selection system, did Florida's recount violate the one-person-one-vote principle of the 14th Amendment? And what the court said was, well, you know, the system for recounting in some counties is different from the system for recounting in other counties, and that difference violates the principle of equality as applied to the um, uh, presidential electoral system. So we're not asking the court to make any new law with respect to that. What we're asking them to see is that the winner-take-all system uh, violates one person, one vote. Uh, Let me uh, continue to play my role, um, because I just call balls and strikes, as you've heard me say in the past. (laughs) But but, uh, didn't we also say in Bush v. Gore, I wasn't here as John Roberts, but didn't we say in Bush v. Gore, this doesn't doesn't count for any other uh, case but uh, Bush v. Gore? You said something close to that, Your Honor. Uh, the court said that. The court's never clarified precisely what that has meant. But the court has also said repeatedly, and the justice I clerked for, Justice Scalia, made this argument expressly, that when you decide a case, that decision binds your decision of decision of lower courts in the future. So if you set a principle in Bush versus Gore that says the 14th Amendment applies, one person, one vote to the presidential selection system, we believe you should apply it in this case, too. Um, and if you're not going to apply it in this case, too, we want to understand exactly why there's one 14th Amendment when it benefits a Republican candidate for president and another 14th Amendment in every other, uh, in ev- every other context. Um, now, I actually don't think the Supreme Court is going to insist that Bush v. Gore only applied it to Bush v. Gore. I think they're going to recognize there's a principle here, and that principle has been a longstanding 50 years uh, in in running, and that principle uh, we think clearly is violated by the equal protection clause uh, by the winner take all system that states adopt for allocating electoral college votes. 
And and don't we have a similar, though, dynamic that exists with the Senate? I mean, uh, if I am a voter in Wyoming, I can control. Um, I have a much bigger stake in the U.S. Senate than you as a uh, constituent of Massachusetts or uh, of New York State. Absolutely. And uh, and um, uh, what the court has basically said is that the Senate gets a constitutional pass. And so does the Electoral College get a constitutional pass. I mean, the fact that Wyoming gets three electors and, uh, and uh, big states like California get like 57 or 58 electors um, is a radically unequal allocation of voter strength because California is much greater proportion, uh, multiple of that than, than the difference between those two numbers of electors. That's why we're not challenging the Electoral College. We're not saying that the allocation of electors is the constitutional problem, even though that's unequal. What we're saying is some, we're challenging something that's not in the Constitution, something that's passed by state law. The states are the ones that have decided um, that uh, uh, winner-take-all is the rule for allocating electors in the particular states. And so we're challenging that state law. You know, if the state said Democratic votes in Massachusetts are worth two times the vote of every Republican vote, and every Democratic ballot we will count as two, and every Republican ballot will count as one, there's no question that uh, that rule would violate the Constitution, even though it's the state, even though it's the state determining how to pick electors, even though the state has the constitutional power, plenary constitutional power to pick electors, the court has been absolutely crystal clear that it must do so respecting the one-person, one-vote principle, and we think winner-take-all violates that principle. My guest today is Patrick Rosenseal from National Popular Vote, an organization working to ensure that the winner of the national popular vote for the presidency actually becomes president, something that hasn't actually happened in two of the last five presidential elections. Mr. Rosenstiel, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm grateful to be here. Thanks for reaching out. You know, most people, I think, believe that changing our electoral college system would require a constitutional amendment, something that is just about impossible to do, really. But your organization has actually found a way around this. And can you explain what that is and how it would change how presidents are elected in the United States? Yeah, sure. I'm not sure that I feel like we found a way around it. I think we found the constitutionally appropriate route to make the change Fair enough. Uh, or to reform the current system. So, um, you know, Article Two, Section One of the Constitution leaves it to the various state legislatures to determine how they're going to award electors. It says each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. Um, states also have a power that's called the power to create interstate compacts in Article One, Section Ten. You know, which is the power for states to form agreements amongst themselves to advance their interests. So, what National Popular Vote, the Interstate Compact, is is it's a, a compact that uses the power under Article Two, Section One, and asks the various states' legislatures if they want to form together and award their electors in block to the candidate who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. That's what the compact says. Our compact takes effect when there are 270 or more electoral votes that have our bill in place on July 20th of a presidential year, and that guarantees the presidency 270 or more electoral votes 
to the candidate who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states, which is the constitutionally appropriate way to make every voter in every state politically relevant in every presidential election. And that's sort of our approach, and that's what we've been working on since 2007. Okay, and, and that seems pretty straightforward, I think. You know, but one, I guess, um, reaction uh, immediately that I have is, while I am politically liberal, I'm kind of, uh, well, I've called myself a Burkean conservative, so I, I tend to believe that things that have been in place for a while, there's generally a good reason for them being there, and, you know, because human beings aren't nearly as smart as we think we are, it's oftentimes best not to make big drastic changes now now that said if i were a state legislator i think i'd probably end up voting for national popular vote but of course as as you know there are plenty of people who oppose it and i'd like to take a, a few minutes to bring up some of their more common objections and get your response if that's okay that'd be that, that'd be fine okay um, yeah, I, I'm not for changes for changes sake. You know, the truth is, is we believe there are significant problems with the current system. We're not into big drastic changes just to have change. You know, when you look at the last election and 94 percent of the campaign occurred in just 12 states and the rest of us were mere spectators. Right. That's a significant problem that's worth addressing. So any objections you might raise, I might tell you how they're bigger problems under the current system and why national popular vote can address those problems. Sure. Um, and, and I probably just want to make it clear up front, if it's OK with you, that that the current system we use is based on a series of state based winner take all laws mm -hmm. and is not the founder system. Those were adopted over time in the lead up to the Civil War, and they made great sense while the states were adopting them. They no longer make sense because battleground states have all the power and the rest of us have none. So we encourage state action to change that and reform the system to address some serious flaws and problems with the current system. So with that caveat, I'm happy to answer any of your questions. All right, great. Uh, well, you know, what I've heard oftentimes from conservatives is that this is a partisan thing that's being pushed by liberals who can't accept that Republicans have won so many presidential elections. And a lot of times these critics will point to the fact that of the, I believe there are now 11 states that have enacted the compact in the law, they're some of the most liberal states in the country. So what's your response to that? First of all, I think you need to know that. I mean, I think it's fair to share with the listeners that you're talking to a rapidly partisan Republican okay. who supports the national popular vote interstate compact. And the reason I support the national popular vote interstate compact is because the battleground states have all of the political power with the president and flyover states have none. So the idea that this is a partisan issue is flat out dishonest and false. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, like in the last set of legislative sessions in 2016, we had 154 Republican sponsors of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, and we had 162 Democrat sponsors of wow. the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And when you point to the states that have enacted it, you're right to say that there are 11 states with 165 electoral votes. The catalyst to elect the compact or the catalyst to enact the compact in the state of New York, which has joined, was the Republican Senate supported by the conservative party of the state of New York because they're tired of New York conservatives and Republicans not mattering and being taken for granted in presidential elections. And they're tired of the influence that the battleground states have, which lead to transactional public policy to court 
moderate persuadable voters in battleground states. Okay. okay. Our most recent chambers were the Oklahoma Senate, right? And the Arizona House of Representatives, where we passed our bill by a 40 to 16 margin. Oh. And so I guess what I'd say is that anybody who tries to put their jersey on with this issue and be a Republican or a Democrat, you know, big issues like this that are the mo- most important systemic political reforms of my lifetime, we have no room for jerseys or we welcome all jerseys. Okay. okay. So there are Republicans, Democrats and independents, conservatives, liberals and moderates who are tired of the battleground states having all of the political influence with American presidents. This has nothing to do with any single election. After all, we've never had a national popular vote election. Right. Okay. So the idea that one candidate cards, right, to build an argument against the national popular vote interstate compact, because we've never once had an election in American history where every voter in every state is politically relevant in the presidential election. We hope 2020 that will be the case. Okay. You know, another thing I hear sometimes is people saying that this goes against the intent of the framers. You you uh, alluded to that a little bit uh, previously. I was wondering if you could maybe expand on that and sort of what the what the uh, uh, your response to that objection about, well, you're going against the framers here. Yeah, well, I think it's bad civics, first of all, and it's silly. And the reason I say it's bad civics and it's silly is because there was no intent of the framers. The framers wrote the language they wrote because when they took 30 votes in 22 separate days to determine how they were going (laughs) to elect the president, they couldn't agree. Right. Okay. so, for example, there was a big segment of the Constitutional Convention that believed there should be a national popular vote of president. Provided you were white, you were male and owned property. And I'm pretty sure nobody listening to your podcast, right, thinks we should go back to that. Right, sure. You know, that idea. But if they do, we don't really want their support, to be honest. But 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 but, you know, at the end of the day, what you need to understand is that they took 30 votes over 22 separate days. And there's one idea that they never voted on, never thought about, never debated, never appeared in the Federalist Papers or in the minutes of the Constitutional Convention. And that's the state based winner take all law that 49 states have in place today. Right. So they didn't think so much about the current system because they never thought about the current system at all. And what they did when they couldn't agree, you know, Madison and his faction thought that the people could vote for president. Hamilton kind of wanted Congress to pick the president, believing George Washington could be president for a lifetime. When they couldn't agree, they formed an electoral college. They had a series of votes trying to dictate to the states how they might award electors. And in the end, we don't have to worry about what their intent was because we can read what as a Burkean conservative and a strict constructionist. You know, I think we can agree that each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors is pretty clear language. Right. And that the founders meant exactly what they wrote, that if the legislature determines their electors to the winner of the national popular vote, then the state based winner take all law. The legislature has the authority and the power to do so, and they are the only body of government. There's a problem with the current system. And again, the current system is the system where 94% of the campaign happens in just 12 states. The rest of us are spectators. And that is the number one sort of indicator of battleground state status, right? Mm -hmm. And battleground state status is probably the number one proxy for political influence with the president of the United States. So battleground states are more likely to get exemptions from no child left behind as flyovers. And battleground states are more likely to get natural disasters declared than flyover states. And if issues are important to persuadable audiences in battleground states, they become the number one domestic policy agenda 
for the presidents in Congress as they try to win re-election campaigns, which is why Mr. Trump was won the battleground state of Florida by saying he's going to keep his hands off Social Security and Medicare. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he won Pennsylvania by talking about starting trade wars with China and American trading partners. Now, reasonable people can be on all sides of those issues, but it's the current system that drives that agenda. We believe it's fundamentally flawed. We know we're not stuck with it. And we ask legislators of all stripes and act reform. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Errett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter, with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule, for under $25. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. are essentially hoping to get to the Supreme Court and to argue that when states do winner-take-all, which um, virtually every state does, but uh, Nebraska and Maine in this country, when they do winner-take-all in a presidential election, in terms of allocating their electoral votes, they are denying equal protection uh, to its citizens by uh, by failing to uphold the one vote one person uh, uh, or one person one vote principle, and so I would ask you how how do you bring this case? You told me that you're looking for plaintiffs, a Democrat in a uh, red state, and a, a Republican in a, a blue state because their votes don't matter if they're going to lose uh, the popular vote there, and all the electoral votes end up going to one candidate. Once you've found those plaintiffs, what, what, what needs to happen? Well, we've actually found the plaintiffs. Um, we're just not in a position to announce the states because we've got to pull the suits together. But what happens is we file a lawsuit in each district court in both of those cases, in both of those dist- states, and we ask the federal court to apply the constitutional principle to winner-take-all. And uh, the hope is that um, one of those courts agrees with us you know, the likelihood is um, courts are very conservative with a small C. They don't like to change things much. So the likelihood is that they don't. But if we can get one court to go with us, um, then that creates what um, uh, we, we call a split in the authority of uh, the jurisdictions. And if there's a split in the authority of the jurisdictions, one court going one way and the other court going another way, the Supreme Court would be um, almost required, especially in an issue, a case as important as this, to take the case and resolve it itself. So our hope is to, as quickly as possible, get this question before the court, because obviously, if we're going to have an effect on the presidential election, we have to do it long enough in advance that um, people can actually adjust their campaigns to the way in which the rules will work. 
And what happens if uh, both courts uh, agree with you or both courts disagree with you? Well, if both courts disagree with us, then there's a significant chance the court would just ignore it. If both courts agreed with us, though, there's no doubt that the Supreme Court would take it up right away because the court's not going to allow one rule to apply in one part of the country and another rule to apply in another part of the country. The court's going to want to make sure that there's a uniform rule applying across the country for picking the president of the United States. And just to be um, uh, just to, to, to clarify, if you were to win in one of these uh, uh, federal courts, there would be uh, several states that would have to, would be under that jurisdiction and would have to change the way they allocate their electoral college. Yeah, but, but my expectation electors. is the Supreme Court would stay any ruling, um, so it wouldn't actually force the state to follow the ruling until it had a chance to review it, because it's such an important question, and being uniform and the approach across the country is so important that the court, um, I think, would make sure that it put its imprimatur before uh, the rules actually had to change. So uh, briefly, uh, the national popular vote movement. Will you just explain what that is to folks and why this doesn't, what, what you're doing doesn't conflict and maybe in some ways supports uh, the national popular vote movement? Yeah, it absolutely supports it. The national popular vote uh, initiative is a genius idea to make it so that the electors in the Electoral College are actually voting for the winner of the national popular vote. And basically, um, the states are forming a compact that says that when 270 electors have joined the compact, meaning states that represent 270 electors, those states pledge to make their, to pledge their electors to vote for the winner of the national popular vote. So this is a way to guarantee perfect uh, one person, one vote nationally. Um, and, and I absolutely support that movement, and there's a lot of really incredibly talented people pushing to get state legislatures to adopt uh, that compact. The problem is that right now it's got a pretty heavy lift to get a bunch of Republican states to join. That's the only way to get it, over 270 right now. Um, and so what we're trying to do is really complementary. So we're saying that everybody's vote should count equally. That's the same principle behind the national popular vote movement. And what we want to build is a movement of millions of people who say it's outrageous that in this so-called representative democracy, my vote doesn't count as much as your vote. And if we can build millions behind that movement, then whatever happens in our lawsuit, we will have millions to turn to the cause of trying to get the states to, um, to also follow an even more perfect uh, proportional system, which would be a national popular vote. So our objectives are the same. We're all following different paths to try to get to the same end. But it is kind of crazy that we've got to be fighting in America in 2017 for a really simple idea that votes should count equally. But that's where we are. And we should say with the NPV, there are 11 states with 165 electoral votes that have already enacted that compact into law. So there's still 105 short and uh, so you're talking about, uh, you know, depending on how you slice it, a lot of um, uh, states that uh, may not be amenable to it. Is there an opportunity for, I mean, since there, I mean, we have a weird system with voting in this country where there's really no federal right to vote per se. There's no constitutional right to vote, I guess I should say. Um, is it possible you can go to different states and that states have within their constitution a similar concept about uh, one vote, one person, and actually wage this on a state-by-state basis? Or is, it, is, is that not, uh, is there no principle uh, that the states uphold that is equivalent to uh, that equal protection? You could do it on a state-by-state basis. 
but it would be a really unfair thing to do to each of these states because the winner-take-all system is something that um, every state basically felt like it had to adopt because if it didn't adopt it, its power would be weaker relative to other states. You know, if you're dividing 10 electors, five and five, between two, uh, between a presidential candidate, you're less interesting to the presidential candidate than if you can promise them 10 electors if they come to your state and win the uh, votes in your state. So that, that's, uh, that's the reason why states are kind of stably in this position, except for, you know, the very interesting Maine and Nebraska exceptions. Um, and that's the reason why it needs to be resolved at the federal level by a federal court who sets one rule for the whole country, because you don't want to make it unfairly burdensome in some places and have a different rule in other places. And, and so that's why we're trying to get to the Supreme Court to get them to make the rule clear. Um, and we hope they uphold the equality um, that makes it so everybody's vote counts equally. You know, in 2016, 52 million Americans voted in a context where their vote just did not count. And that's just outrageous in, a, in what's called the greatest democracy in the world. One other thing I wanted to mention along the swing states, safe states line that I thought was interesting was I found a study from a professor named Andrew Reeves who said that uh, competitive states, swing states, actually seem to receive more disaster declarations and mm-hmm. disaster aid than safe states do. And it's scary when you imagine that just by living in a certain state, you might get better treatment from the executive branch because that happens to be a politically divided state. It's not something most people would think of, but it's remarkable how these impacts can trickle down and really make a difference in people's lives just by dividing the country artificially. Um, the, the, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Uh, and it makes sense, right? I mean, you've already seen um uh, I mean, first of all, uh, Donald Trump has already been campaigning and he's been campaigning mainly in these swing states already. I mean, he goes to these states. If there's a disaster in a swing state, that becomes more important, frankly, than a disaster in a non-swing state. Um, Many of these swing states are in the Midwest. Uh, The president has made a very important uh, effort to on the on the uh, trade front to help states in the Midwest. There are also many of them are our farm states. He's also been helping the farm states. So uh, and there is research on this, as you say, that these swing states get more attention, more federal money, and it makes sense. But it's wrong. You also mentioned earlier in the podcast about the level of attention that presidential candidates spend, how they spend their time in various states. What have you seen in terms of how presidential candidates are allocating their time and their resources in terms of which states they're visiting and which states they're ignoring? Well, there's interesting research on this, and I don't have it right at my fingertips, but as I recall, something like 98% of all presidential visit visits by the two presidential candidates occurred in just 12 states. Um, when I was up in uh, Connecticut campaigning for, uh, for the popular vote, uh, I pointed out 
that in the last election, only $300 was spent by the, the two presidential candidates on the campaign. Uh, and there was only one visit. There, there actually was one presidential visit, which is, which is somewhat surprising because in previous, uh, previous elections, there have been zero. But there are many states, half the states, have zero presidential visits so or presidential candidate visits. So that's that as i say i mean that that's that's not good for democracy we need people to be engaged and engaged in the election and uh, we're not getting that from the current system the current system is 12 states elect the president um and that it's it's, it's as though we're taking a sample of uh of voters in the united states and letting them decide who's going to be president that's just uh, not a good system yeah, and I mean it's based largely on how div- how politically divided your state itch is, which isn't anything that people have control over. Um, one of the arguments you mentioned earlier or touched on was this idea of the extent to which the electoral college helps small states, because that's a common argument that people have made in response to some articles I've written or on social media. They'll say that the electoral college really protects small states from the tyranny of the majority. And I've heard Democrats and Republicans in smaller states make this argument. Do you think that that argument has some merit or do you think it's overblown? I think it's vastly overblown. It has some merit in that under the Electoral College system, uh, the number of electors a state gets is two senators plus whatever number of representatives they have. So, you know, Montana has three electoral votes, um, and it only has a population of, I don't know, well, certainly voters. It only has about 400,000 voters. So um, a state, so that's, you know, that's three electoral votes. And you take a state like, I don't know, uh, Iowa, which has six electoral votes, but it has... Um, about 1.5 million voters. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so that's a, that, that ratio is not quite right. So there is an advantage. We, you know, we absolutely cannot deny that there's some small advantage to smaller states on the current system, but, but very important. Don't forget 12 states do the electing of the president and not a single one of those 12 states is a small state, if you define a small state as a three electoral vote state. So the smallest states, not a single one of them. Uh, the only actual smallish state is New Hampshire among those 12. And New Hampshire has four electoral votes, but the other ones are not, are, are, are not small. They're medium sized. They are large in the case of Florida. So smaller, small states are not participating in the election of the president. Uh, so, you know, that's, that, that's kind of a myth. And um, if we look at ex- how the president is actually elected. You're right. When you think of the swing states, you don't generally think of the smallest states in the country. You think of Florida or Ohio or Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. And it's not as if small states are uniformly tend to be one way or the other politically. I mean, you have states like Vermont and Rhode Island, you have states like Montana and Wyoming, 
And it's not as if small states are Republican or Democrat universally. Um, as a Republican, one argument that I'd be curious to get your opinion on is a lot of people will reach out to me online or say things like, well, if we had a popular vote instead of the Electoral College, New York and California would just decide the president every time. Is that something that that you're concerned about, that these urban centers will sort of dominate the popular vote if we switch to an election by popular vote for president? Well, I just, first of all, that's just not true. Um, you know, we have, certainly we have states that have, that are populous and we have states that are small and we have voters across the country. And every voter, when you have a popular vote, will have exactly the same impact, whether that voter lives in California or lives in Vermont. You know, one person, one vote. I think that's the way that Americans would like to see the system work. I mean, under the current system, I mean, you had, just looking at the figures, I mean, in California, there were 8 million, 9 million votes. Let's just say maybe there would be 10 million in a situation where you would have the uh, electoral, uh, sorry, where you have the popular vote to determine the president. And you probably have, you know, you would expect there would be an increase to maybe 140 million people voting, maybe, gosh, 150 million people voting. And that, and, you know, so that's like six or 7% in California. But again, that's not really the right way to look at it because what we're going to be doing is shifting from a state based system to a person based system. And I think that's what Americans want anyway. So, whether you live in California or Tennessee or Kentucky or Vermont, you as an individual voter will have exactly the same impact. And that's, that is the aim. That's the goal. I like that you explained it as shifting from a state-based system to a person-based system, because I think that's an interesting way to put it. Because as you touched on earlier, California has millions of Republicans. And while a lot of people may think of California or New York, for example, as just pure blue states, that's really not the case. And I think it's more reflective of, you know, a true electoral map would reflect that there are red pockets and red voters in both California and New York, just like there are blue voters in Texas. Um, so yeah, a people-based system seems to make more sense than a land-based or a state-based system. And as you said, it sort of would enfranchise millions of those millions of Republicans in California if suddenly their vote was more likely to tip the balance of a presidential election because they weren't confined within this state that usually goes Democrat. Right. Um, I also just, touched, David, oh, just one other, yeah, just one other point on that. You know, I think Americans identify themselves uh, mostly as Americans. But they also identify themselves as being part of different kinds of groups, you know, which is something that Tocqueville uh, figured out almost 200 years ago. And those groups are, they're religious. They may be racial or ethnic. Um, they, they may be people with, they may have similar interests. And these kinds of groupings cut across state lines. I mean, they have almost nothing to do with state lines. Whereas the way we elect presidents right now is very, very state centric. So I, uh, 
I think it's just wrong to think of people as identifying only with their state and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, uh, we, we, we in, um, I don't know, Kansas, we're not, you know, I think of myself as a Kansan. I want to make sure that Kansas's electoral votes get counted. No, I think they most of all think of themselves as Americans. Make sure that my American vote gets counted. We've just heard clips today starting with Making Contact, explaining the origins of the Electoral College. Citizens Take Action spoke with Jim Glassman about the problems with the Electoral College and how to fix it. Ring of Fire Radio, in two parts, talked with Professor Lawrence Lessig about his lawsuit that he hopes will force reform of the Electoral College. The Politics Guys also discussed the interstate compact strategy to reform presidential elections. And finally, we just heard part two from the Citizens Take Action conversation about some of the myths of benefits of the Electoral College system, particularly its supposed protection of smaller states. Members will be getting a bonus episode with a couple of clips focusing on the in-case-you-missed-them stories of voter suppression from the 2018 election in preparation for the upcoming focus on voter suppression leading up to the 2020 election. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level. If that's too steep for you, consider getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestoftheleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is the from central New York. With the 2020 presidential campaigns already kicking off uh, much earlier than they did some 10 years ago, almost 12 years ago now, I wanted to offer just a couple of sentences to your listeners who have to be elated, many of them, to see Bernie Sanders into the race and Miss Gabbard also be in the race and see the entire political spectrum swing his way in such a way that many people didn't predict two, three years ago. Do not get distracted. Do not, please do not forget. 2020 is not just a presidential election year. It is a year where many congressional seats will be up for grabs, both Democrats and Republican seats, seats that are winnable by progressives and social Democrats. Also, maintain a vision for your local community. Maintain a vision for your local community and begin working to elect not only progressives, but social Democrats at the local level. 
I have heard stated many times in the progressive media that between 2009 and I believe it was 2012, the Democrats lost a thousand seats under the helm of Barack Obama, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi. The new day that many people, such as myself, who has been a socialist for over a decade, I had what I like to call some um, concerns back a couple of years ago where I started doubting if it could ever be done in this country. But that day, which um, I never thought I would see, seems to be here. And a strong justice-based program can now be implemented. Things have gotten to the point economically, socially, culturally, where even those who want to dismiss wholeheartedly socialism see the merits in some of the programs that the conservative, the corporate conservative right have been fighting against since the New Deal was first implemented. On that point, your listeners may be interested in reading a book called The Businessman's Crusade Against the New Deal. I've mentioned it before. It is a powerful, powerful book, and it'll give you an idea of... um, the organizations that were put together to actually destroy the New Deal. Many of those organizations were reincarnated in the 1980s. Many of them were reincarnated uh, in the 1970s in order to defeat what they called rampant democracy, radicalism. And many of those entities are still working under new names, but are losing strength and losing influence. Now, we are entering a very dangerous season in the next three or four years because the corporate sector of this society does not yet know how to or how it wants to attack the people who who progressives and social democrats are putting forward into the Congress. What makes this dangerous is they're going to try many tactics to not only get those people out of office or try to bribe them, but mostly get them out of office, but also to cut the power that's feeding them, meaning you, your listeners, the myriad of independent media sources that are promoting them. And so there could be a real push and drive towards repression over the next four or five years. We need to be cognizant of this. Your listeners need to be cognizant of this. And remember, don't just pay attention to the presidential race. Have your mind focused on it, but also like when you're driving, you have to look at multiple things at one time. You wanna look at who's running in Congress, who's running in the Senate, who can you replace in the Congress? Who can you replace in the Senate? Who can you elect at your regional level, your local level? That is going to be how this agenda is implemented. I wish you all luck. Keep up the good work. Peace.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I have a question that I think sort of dovetails with the conversation that has been happening on and off about the election. I, I, I'm sure we're going to have more conversations as things progress, but it's, uh, it's sort of started with a call from Jason who called in to express his frustration about the sexism of Bernie supporters followed by comments that came in via comments to the blog that I talked about on the show from John, also a Clinton supporter, but and he appreciated Jason's comments, but also appreciated my comments when I explained that, of course, Bernie Sanders supporters are sexist because everyone is sexist. And, and he explained that, uh, although he thinks that support for Bernie Sanders is sort of over the top and, and blown out of proportion due to anti-Clintonism and sexism uh, that he recognized and especially quoted from a, or sorry, he didn't quote, but he, he uh, explained that he had learned in a book that was one of those dissections of 2016, uh, very heavy in data and numbers that according to that analysis, that Bernie Sanders supporters actually weren't more sexist than sort of the, the general population. There wasn't a specific element of sexism that was unique to Bernie Sanders supporters. Now, I, I would certainly say and agree that by running against a, a candidate like Hillary Clinton, I, I just mean a woman, like could have been anyone. But because he ran against a woman, that it exacerbated any amount of existing sexism within his base of support. And I think that would have been the case with literally any candidate. So anyway, this conversation has sort of been going back and forth for a few weeks now, and now I have a new addition to it, but from a totally different angle. So Joe from Michigan wrote in, I think a couple of weeks ago, but I hadn't had a chance to get to it yet. So Joe writes and explains that he is a formerly enthusiastic Bernie supporter. From the last campaign, he was all in on Bernie and now he's having some reservations and that stems primarily or maybe exclusively from the fact that the the pool of candidates this time is a lot wider and deeper and so he's wondering if as a white guy is it he doesn't frame it this way but almost like is it ethical to just support another white guy when the, there are other candidates available. So skipping past a lot of his prelude, I'm going to cut to his sort of conclusion and the questions he asks at the end. So Joe writes, are the questions about Bernie's issues with race and gender and all the rest truly valid? Am I just another cisgender white male millennial who can't possibly understand the plight of women or people of color, who is therefore easily able to overlook that same lack of understanding in a man like Bernie? Or am I justified in thinking that this is a bit of a smear against a man with a record as impeccable as they come in American politics? I'm ready to throw down with Bernie, to pound pavement, to write texts and phone bank and all the rest, but I've got this uncomfortable feeling about it for some reason. Maybe this comes across as though I'm asking you to absolve me of my white male guilt. I hope that's not what it really is. I can't honestly say. 
talk about blind spots, right? Can a white man support another white man for the most powerful position there is and still consider himself a progressive? End quote. So first of all, let's get some things out of the way. Yes, of course you are just another cisgender white male millennial who can't possibly understand the plight of women or people of color. I am also in that camp. And does this mean that we are therefore easily able to overlook that same lack of understanding in a man like Bernie? I would also say, yes, of course, our own experience colors how we see the world, and that includes other people. So I think all of those things are absolutely true, but it doesn't mean we are incapable of getting a a general grasp of this election and approaching it reasonably and rationally. So we'll skip to the bottom. Can a white man support another white man for the most powerful position there is and still consider himself a progressive? So in general, the answer is obviously yes. Obviously. There's absolutely, that's not controversial in any way, shape, or form. I think nearly 100% of people listening will agree with that. Because in general, all you have to think is if a white man has better policies, especially considerably better policies than someone else who may be be a person of color or a woman or some other representative of some other minority group, then it it just doesn't matter. The ideas matter more. The policies that will be implemented matter so much more than the identity or the gender or the race of the person who's actually in office. So in general, it's a really easy question. I know that Joe is asking in particular in this race with this slate of candidates, can a white man support another white man and still consider himself progressive? And I still come down, as I have expressed before, I come down on the side of ideas and policies that I think that it is possible to prioritize policies above all else and still think that diversity in candidates or or the race or gender of a politician does matter and that bringing in new perspectives that are born from growing up with a different experience than any white guy in America has ever experienced is completely valuable. So what you really have to ask yourself is, how much do I agree with, in this case, for Joe, how much do I agree with Bernie's policies more than other people's policies? Like, if there was an equal and opposite, and many would argue, well, you got Elizabeth Warren, she's very progressive, why not jump on board with her? You know, if, if, if you want to express your support of female candidates and all the same progressive firebrand economic policies, well, there she is. So you really have to look at both of those candidates, look at both of their sets of policies and say, do I really believe in Bernie's policies that much more than what Elizabeth Warren is presenting or any other candidate if someone else happens to come along and and be along those same lines? The question that I think maybe will help shed more light on this is not, can a white man support another white man, but can anyone support a white man? Could a person of color, could a woman of color support a white man over someone else and still consider themselves progressive or still feel that the candidate choice they are making based on the policy choices that candidate is espousing, that they are doing the best thing for society as a whole or for any particular minority group, the progressive movement, 
and so forth. So I would say that we're all on a sliding scale somewhere. Some people are way over on the ideas are the only thing that matters. Some people, I think very few, <laughs> maybe zero people are in, in this category, but on the other side of the spectrum is identity is the only thing that matters. As I said, I don't think almost anyone is actually over there, but there are, I would say probably most people are somewhere in between. So we're probably like bunched up pretty far over to one side. We're focusing on ideas. That's what matters the most to most people. But for a lot of incredibly legitimate reasons, it's not just it'd feel good if a woman was president. There are absolutely concrete benefits to having a woman be the head of state in the United States. A hundred percent. I completely agree with that premise. And so the question is, if you consider the benefits of the, uh, of electing someone who is either not white or not male or neither, and you look at the benefits of that, regardless of policies, and then you combine those benefits with the policies of any given politician, then the question is, how far are you willing to let a politician slide away from your preferred policy goals because of their minority or female status? And so, as I've been saying, Jason and John and Joe have all expressed their opinions or asked their questions. If you're hearing a problem with this conversation, I'm with you. I would love to hear from anyone who is not a white guy express their opinion about to what degree do you put weight on the identity status of a politician. I, I think we can all agree that the ideas and the policies espoused are either the very top most important thing or damn near because all, all I have to do is bring up names like Herman Cain or Ben Carson or Condoleezza Rice or Sarah Palin to make you say, oh, yeah, oh right, right, right. No, that, that's a good point. I, I, I might want a woman to be president, but not that one. So we know that ideas are more important than identity. I, I think that's established for the vast majority of people. But there are reasons, as I say, incredibly legitimate reasons that you would not have the ideas and the policies espoused be your only element uh, that you would use to judge the candidates and and pick the one that you want to support. So what I would really love to hear from people is if there is an imaginary white man who happens to agree with you personally on every single issue, and they will fight to the nail to support every single policy that you wish were enacted. You might think, well, great, that sounds great. Man, it's too bad he's a white guy, but well, you know, at least he agrees with me on literally everything. If there were a, a candidate who represented some version of a minority status or a, uh, a a gender that is not the traditional straight white male who we have had as president for almost the entire span of our history, then uh, how far away from your ideal slate of policies would you allow a candidate to get and still say, no, I'd still rather support this person because of 
the, the diversity in, in identity that they would bring to the office. Some of you are going to say none. Z- I, if, if you take a half step out of line, I'm done with you. I'd rather stick with the person who's exactly, uh, you know, in line with me. But others are going to say, uh, yeah, I know I'd, I'd take a little bit of disagreement on policy for more diversity in candidates. I want to hear from you guys to to hear where you fall and and how you make that calculation. I think that that is a way that we could make a lot of progress in this conversation and gain a lot of insights and help everyone individually in their own decision-making process for how they come to the conclusion of which candidates they want to support. So as always, I would love to hear from you. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.